Good afternoon. Silence. What do you think of being silenced? What comes to your mind? Perhaps it's something awesome. Something that makes you stand in silent wonder like a a beautiful canyon or an amazing sunset. Perhaps it's something awful. A, A sudden change of life. War or rumors of war. A loss of work or a loss of life. Maybe a time when someone has called for you to be silent. A parent who just needs the noise to stop. <laughs> or, or maybe a pastor who says, let's take a moment of silence to focus. Or that moment when a judge enters the courtroom. One person has said, silence is the space for something new to happen. Silence is the space for something new to happen. The title of the sermon today is Silenced as Sinners Before Our Glorious God. Silenced as Sinners Before Our Glorious God. Here in Romans 3, 1 to 20, Paul is wrapping up his argument about sin. And in this section, he brings us all, Jew and Gentile, To consider, and this will be our main point for this section, that we are all under the power of sin and are accountable to God. We are all under the power of sin and accountable to God. Our first two points come from the questions that Paul asks in both verse 1 and verse 9 about What advantage, if any, do the people of God have? You know, having an advantage is a good thing, actually. And and the question in these verses is, well, what advantage do we have? Well, in verses 1 to 8, that answer is, we have an advantage. We We have an advantage. Again, having an advantage is a good thing. In sports or games, players win by gaining an advantage over their opponent. Gaining some skill, taking higher ground, making a good move. In life, there's an advantage in giving yourself to learning or to hard work. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 12 tells us that wisdom is an advantage in preserving your life. Well, in the last chapter, Paul told the Jews, you can't rely on your religious identity or your religious performance to make you right with God. And it begged the question then, and it's the one that Paul is posing here in verses 1 and 2, well, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? And he answers, much In every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. You know, God gave the Jewish nation 
an amazing advantage to have the very Word of God. Out of all the people on the earth, God gave them specific revelation of His character and His holiness. Everyone else had this general revelation through what was created. But God gave the Jewish nation promises and commands, blessings and curses, and prophecies of a salvation that He would bring not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world. The words of God mentioned here in in these verses that Paul's referring to are things like the Ten Commandments and the law, along with the, the histories and the poetry and prophecy. Basically, it's what we now call the Old Testament. These are the words of God that were entrusted to them. Paul has just said in chapter 2 that Jewish unfaithfulness was causing God's name to be spoken of in an unrespectful way or, or a blasphemous way. And it would bring God's wrath. So, here they have the very words of God, but they're bringing uh, condemnation So in verse 3, Paul asks this question that a Jew might be asking about concerning God's faithfulness to his promises. Does God's faithfulness become void if God's people are unfaithful? Does God's faithfulness become void if God's people are unfaithful? In other words, would, would the Jews sin then cause God to sin by not following through with the promise He made to them. It's basically a question asking if our actions affect God's character. Do do my actions affect God's character? Well, Paul answers that in verse 4. He says, not at all. And he quotes... The scripture in Psalm 51.4 knocking down this unbiblical argument saying that when, when mankind sins, God is still true. God is not changed by human sin. Well, then in verses 5 to 8, Paul poses questions as, as though he were the Jewish opponent seeking to challenge Paul's own understanding of Jewish identity and obedience to God's word. Uh, To kind of rephrase what what you see there in verses 5 to 8, it'd be kind of like him saying, okay, so if God is unchanged by our unfaithfulness, is it right for him then to condemn us as sinners? If, If my sin makes him look more glorious and make His glory obvious to all, why don't we just sin more? So that God can become even more glorious. It's a silly argument, isn't it? And in fact, he even says, I'm using a human argument. Well, apparently, this false and slanderous statement that we read in verse 8 was being made by Jews concerning the Christians. At that time, because the the Christians did not require following God's law, things like circumcision, 
and the dietary laws. Christians, a Christian doesn't require obedience to a certain set of rules to make us right with God, but only faith in Christ and what Christ has done for us. Our faithfulness to a set of rules, that doesn't have an impact on God's character either. Now, that doesn't mean we can just go around and do whatever we want, of course. We, we will face the consequences of our own actions. But God doesn't change because I've either been faithful or unfaithful. That doesn't affect God. He doesn't need anyone to confirm that He is true and glorious. And that's what we see there in verse 7. God is as true and as glorious as He will ever be. Our actions don't change Him, either for good or for bad. God is good all the time. God is good and faithful and true, even though we are not. We are not. And so our condemnation is just. In other words, we deserve God's wrath and punishment in His final judgment. Well, now, as we just saw in verses 1 and 2, Paul says the Jews have an advantage. They've been given the words of God. But then in verse 9, Paul says, no, we don't have an advantage. This is our second point. Why? Why do we not have an advantage? Because both Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. It's what Paul's been saying throughout this discussion on sin. He began back in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 16, saying, The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And Paul begins showing how people are without excuse. They need the gospel to save them from the wrath of God. And then in the next chapter, chapter 2, Paul shows that the Jews themselves, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you therefore have no excuse. People in general have no excuse. And even you have no excuse. And then here in chapter 3, 9 to 18, Paul again backs up his claim with Scripture from the Psalms and from Isaiah, showing that every person in their entire being is turned away from God and worthless. Beginning there with verse 10, which kind of summarizes the whole thing. As it is written, there is none, no one righteous, not even one. The verses Paul quotes in 10 through 12 involve our, our being. Those in verses 13 and 14 involve our speech. And, and those in 15 and 16 involve our, our actions. And then 17 and 18, our heart. You know, it's kind of like those 
animals that live in caves and dark places for so many generations that they've become blind with no ability to see. Surely you've seen those on, you know, Nat Geo or something. We, too, like that, have become so corrupted in sin over generations of sin that we have no ability to understand or seek God, as verse 11 says. Now, you may be asking me, is it really true? No one seeks God? Come on, I I know people that that seek God. I've sought God. Hmm. Hmm. 13th century church father Thomas Aquinas said it would appear that people seek God. But what they're really seeking are the things only God can give. Happiness, meaning in life, freedom from guilt, peace. These are the things God gives to those who put their faith in Christ. And many simply want the benefits of God without God. Or take 18th century pastor Jonathan Edwards. He said of people seeking God, you have no desire for God. You have no inclination to come to Him. You are morally in and of yourself incapable of coming to God. You will never seek Him until the Holy Spirit first changes your heart and puts a desire in your heart for Him. Then and only then will you seek Him. Well, friends, it's, it's only if one's heart has been changed that it will, it will naturally flow out in other ways that we would seek Him. Our speech and our actions follow what's in our heart. And as Jesus said in Luke 6.45, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. What we speak influences what we do. So truly the whole world has no excuse. None. We fully deserve the just wrath and judgment of God. And so as we come to Paul's conclusion on sin that we've looked at in detail, starting we started at chapter 118 and now we've come all the way to chapter 320. Verse 19 says that every mouth will be silenced. And this is our third point. Paul begins with the Jews. He says those under the law will, will, will be held accountable by the law and ends with the whole world being held accountable to God. Having the very words of God, it was certainly an advantage. But because they could not keep God's word, it became part of their judgment. And along with the whole world, the Jews also will stand without excuse, their mouths silenced before God's just judgment. 
and and all we every one of us we all will stand if we're standing on our own we will have nothing to say for ourselves if we stand in our own power we have no excuses that we can bring we can't say a single thing we can't say we were unaware we can't claim that god is unfair as paul continues in verse 20 no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. No matter how hard you try, you can never be good enough to satisfy God's law. It's, it's simply a losing project. You see, the problem isn't God's law. It's us. The law is good and right and true. But we're neither good nor right nor true. So then what's the purpose of the law? Why, why, why did God give us the law? Why did God give the Jews the law? Why, did it, why has it gotten passed down to us too? Well, Paul concludes in verse 20. He says, rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. You see, God's law is like a mirror. And we can see ourselves in. It shows us how far short of God's perfect standard we are. Often I ask someone who claims to be a Christian, tell me about a time when you became aware of your sin and the need to repent before our holy God. Tell me, tell me when that happened in your life. You know, seeing, seeing, if you just see Jesus as a good example to follow, that does not make you a Christian, you see. It's an, until you become conscious of your sin, you, you really don't have any need to repent. You don't need a Savior. If you're not aware that you're a sinner in desperate need of God's salvation and salvation saving work in the death and resurrection of Christ, then you're probably not a Christian. Now, if this describes you, if, if that describes you, or maybe you just want to know what Christians believe, then let me take a little time to explain this good news or what, what, what we call in the church the gospel. I'll, I'll do that in just three short points. The gospel tells us first about God, that he made us in his image to reflect his glory. But it, it also tells us about, number two, humankind. That humankind is in denial of God's word. You see, like our first parents, we all turn from God, seeking self and selfish desires, pursuing the, the desires of our flesh, the desires of our eyes, and, and the pride of life. We have no excuses. As verse 20 says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. And we will face God's just wrath, his anger towards sin and sinners in a final judgment. That's point two. Point three. So, Christ Jesus came. 
to do what we could not do, to save sinners from God's wrath and judgment. This is the gospel. In, in verse 17, Paul quotes Isaiah 59, 8. And, 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 and that whole passage in Psalm 59 is a beautiful passage that begins, let me just read Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. It says, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. You see, our, our only hope is that God would step in. Isaiah 59.16 continues, He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene, so his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. The way of peace that Paul speaks of in verse 17 is not known is is not known wait the way the way of peace that Paul says in verse 17 is not known is only found through the one who is prophesied in Isaiah 9:7 the one who was to come that verse says for to us a child was born to us a son was given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father the prince of peace this is jesus jesus is our prince of peace we know his name now his name is jesus he is the redeemer that that even isaiah prophesied back in chapter 59 in verse 20 the, the, the Redeemer who would come for those who repent of their sins. You see, His death satisfies God's justice. He pays the debt of our sin and His resurrection proves that God's favor was on Christ. The proper response to this Gospel is to put your faith in Jesus and to repent from your sins, to turn. To turn from that rebellion. This is what Christians believe. This is the good news that the Word of God proclaims. Now, if you want to know peace, you have to meet this Prince, the Prince of Peace. That's how you know peace. And I would love to introduce you to him, as would many of the members of this church. Come and ask me. Come and speak to one of the members of our church that can help you know the Prince of Peace. Now, all this talk about law, it begs the question about a Christian's relationship to the law today. How, how, are, how are Christians uh, supposed to relate to the law? Are we to obey God's law today? Well, as I just explained, we're saved by faith in the good news that, the, that God's word explains. But, and before believing... God's law acted like a mirror, remember, to, to show us our sin and our need for repentance. That's, that's what the law was doing. Well, for those who believe in Christ, God's law, indeed all of God's word, is a beautiful picture of his character that we love and that we long to apply to ourselves as we imitate Christ 
who was himself the very Word of God made flesh. The Word of God is a picture of God's character, showing us who he is and who we become as we imitate Christ. Now, some say that you don't need to read the Old Testament. That's the, that's the Old Testament. All we need now is the New Testament. Well, that's, that's, that's not so. Think about it this way. When the resurrected Christ was walking uh, along the road, he's, he's already died and rose again. He's walking on the road with two, two of his former friends. They didn't realize it, but he's walking on the way to a town called Emmaus in Luke 24. And there in Luke 24, 27, he says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in that Bible study? That, that would be amazing. And, and guess what? It was a study through the Old Testament. You see, brothers and sisters, your whole Bible is a window into the character of God. So don't throw away the Old Testament. It is a light to your path. Read the Old Testament, but read it with gospel lenses. Right? Look for Christ as you read the Old Testament. See yourself not, not in the heroes necessarily of the Old Testament, but rather those who needed redemption just like yourself. See God's character. Look for God's heart and praise Him. Now, so our relationship with the Old Testament is, is one that should be, uh, we, we should maintain our relationship with the Old Testament. Now, let's talk about advantages. We've talked about advantages. I know that when we talk about things like this, it may be easy to start comparing your li- yourself, your life, with others around you. You know, why is my life so hard? Why do, why do others have so many more advantages than I do? Well, listen, there's, there's no advantage in envy and coveting, uh, you know, wanting what others have. There's no advantage to, to turn to sin in that discussion. God has given each of us life and breath and everything. And he has appointed the, the time in, in this world that we are in, that you've been brought into it, and the places where you live, including the country or your family that you've been placed in. This is what Acts 17, 24 through 27 says. Acts 17, 24 to 27. Why did God put you in that country or that family or this country at this time? What's his purpose? In that, well, according to Acts seventeen twenty seven, it is that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far. 
from each of us. So friends, regardless of your starting point, every one of us at one time or another was far from God in our sin and rebellion. And He put us in the families, in the countries, in this particular time of history so that He would be glorified in the saving of us. And no matter where we come from or where we are now, or where life will take us in the next years or days or months, we who know Him are blessed in the knowing. More more so than any other thing. Today in the membership class, we were talking about this very thing. To know Christ is blessed better than anything that my life has to offer. Than anything anyone else's life could ever offer. You see, because in Jesus, He has given us the greatest exchange. We come with our sin. We come with our pain, our trials, our troubles. And He says, I will give you eternal life. I will give you Heaven, I will give you peace. That's a pretty good thing. Well, let me speak to the, the Christian parents and their children for a moment. You see, the gift of being raised in a Christian home is an advantage. It's an advantage. Talk to any one of the people who come from a non-Christian home here. And they will tell you, oh, you were at an advantage. Loving parents, having the Word of God, going to church. Now, of course, that's not enough to bring you to the righteousness of God. But look, parents, what a blessing it is that you read the Scriptures with your children, that you, you teach them how to pray. What a blessing that you sing gospel songs with them. How amazing it is that that word is being implanted in them at such an early age. Praise the Lord for that advantage. And I want to encourage you parents, Christian parents, to keep up the good work. It's hard work. Oh, but it is so worth it. It is so worth it. Now, your kids don't have new hearts just because they can repeat a gospel outline. (laughs) That's not what makes a a Christian a Christian. It's not because they're obedient to you. Salvation is a miraculous work of God. It's not something we can train into our kids. So, like the rest of mankind that doesn't seek God, parents pray God. That God would call your children to Himself. Pray for their soul. Pray with an earnestness. Pray that they will come to Jesus. Because you're not guaranteed that. Pray that He will lead them to repentance and faith. 
And keep in mind, parents, that, that every time that their behavior requires discipline on your part, you have a chance not only to deal with their behavior, which is an application of the law, but you also have this opportunity to speak to their heart, which is an application of the gospel. Now, kids, kids, I know it doesn't always feel like your parents are a treasure. But thank God for your parents. Thank God for them. When, when parents lay down the law, you know where your boundaries are. You, you understand what it is that they like or don't like. You get knowledge about your parents and their character. And, and if your parents are Christian, then you have an advantage. Because they're seeking to also lead you in God's ways, not just their own. It's, it's, it's a kindness from God that you have your Christian parent. So seek God's wisdom in that advantage that you've been given. And, and, and then to all of us, just, I just want to say, it's what a kindness that God has given us His law. Right? The law of God leads us to understand Him. His character. His holiness. What He likes. What He dislikes. His faithfulness. His truth. His glory. The law of God makes us conscious of our sin and our need for repentance. It makes us aware that we are all under the power of sin and are accountable to God. You know, in, in the Revelation of John, last book of the Bible, it speaks of the end time. Uh, that, that time when Jesus, the Lamb of God, opens the seventh seal the final seal. And when he does that, he, he opens the seventh seal and it says, there will be silence in heaven for half an hour. Silence. Revelation 20 says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. You know, in that day, the judge will enter and there will be silence. There will be nothing that, that any one of us could say for ourselves. No excuses that we can make. Every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God. But in that court, there is one who will not be silent. He stands on our behalf and He is saying, for this one I have died. For this one I have died. For this one I have died. My blood has written her name. My blood has written his name in my book of life. The silence of that moment 
is the space for something new to happen. Revelation 21, 5-7 He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God. And they will be my children. And then, church, we, the redeemed, will stand before our God and Father, fully redeemed and reconciled by Christ. And with a loud voice, we will praise God and say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by Him and He alone. Can give me rest. Let me encourage you now to think on these things in a moment of silent reflection. Oh Lord Jesus. You alone can give us rest. You paid our debt. You carried our load. Our righteousness that you have given. It did not come from us. It is yours. And we say to you, Jesus, hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen.